Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Mike Smith on the Rider Flex podcast. Good morning, Mike. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for uh, checking in with me, Steve. Uh, yeah, no problem. You in Denver? I am. I'm right. Uh, I'm looking at the Capitol building. Oh, you're downtown, huh? Yeah, my uh, my son uh, started at a new school about two blocks away this uh, this year, and so we moved offices to be a little closer there. Oh, your office. I see your office is downtown. Gotcha. All right. Do you, yeah, do you right. live? Uh, whereabouts do you live? North, south, east, west, downtown. Little, little south of downtown, neighborhood called West Washington Park or West Wash Park. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know the area. I know the area well. Um, we could do a whole podcast on my thoughts around downtown Denver over the last twenty four months, but. Maybe we shouldn't get into it. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, it's got its problems right now. It needs a good scrubbing. Needs a good scrubbing. There you go. That's a that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Last time I was down there, I'm like, what is going on here, man? We need to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I uh, as a startup guy, you know, I have a I have a inexpensive office, and uh, as part of that neighborhood is is uh, is a lot of uh, temporary neighbors. So <laughs> you're being so kind. Oh yeah. Um, but Hey, I love Colorado in general, but uh, yeah, we got some work to do downtown, but anyway. Uh, so Mike, before we get into acclimate, you got a great uh, career. You got some fun stuff in your history, uh, Naval Academy, um, some, you know, a bunch of things I want to get into. So why don't you give us the, Let's start with the early life. Mom, dad, siblings, where you grew up, if you don't mind, give us a little history there. Yeah, sure. I was born up the road uh, in Casper, Wyoming. My dad was in the oil field. Um, he was a geophysicist. And uh, he grew up back east, but he always wanted to live out west. And uh, geology and rocks were kind of his jam. And so that's how we got into that. Um, but uh, he really wanted to live in Alaska. So when I was two, we moved to Alaska. I grew up uh, from till the, about the age of six in, in what's now Anchorage. Wow, uh, but he used to work kind of on and off uh, offshore oil field or up on the North Slope, or you know, so uh, which was cool because we had like a week on, week off with him, or sometimes he'd go two weeks on, two weeks off. Yeah, and uh, he had like a jet boat, and we'd go get lost upriver, uh, cool. which was which was like a super fun. Like all my earliest memories are out in the woods there. That's great. Um, age six, uh, he lost his job in uh, uh, in the big layoffs that happened in 1986, and so we moved to Idaho. He became a teacher um my mom uh uh went full-time at being a nurse and that's kind of where i grew up in boise idaho boise idaho um, so, so what i can see where the love for the outdoors came in early in your life because your dad was into it and then that's that that obviously followed followed you a little bit yeah it's uh it's kind of a family thing you know uh, the reason we moved to idaho is, is that my um mother's parents moved to idaho uh in retirement uh, my grandfather was a forester, worked for international paper. and Oh, really? And uh, Yeah. So uh, my parents bought the adjoining property to theirs when I was a kid. And my dad and I, when I was uh, the summers after first, second and third grade, he and I built a house together on that property. Wow. Um, but in the mornings, we'd go hiking with my uh, my grandparents. Um, and so it was kind of like 
you know, you get to go learn about a forest from a, for a professional, you know, who also happens to, you know, be your grandparent. Like it was, uh, it was a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah. That's, that's great. Do, do you still have uh land up there property up in Idaho for your family or no? Nope. Nope. My, um, uh, uh, my parents went through a divorce, um, uh, after about like four decades of, uh, of marriage and kind of one of the, the, the results of that was, is that, uh, they both kind of went their different ways and, and that, uh, that property got sold. So you were grown when they got divorced then? Yeah, I was, uh, I was a grown man. I was with kids of my own, um, at that point. So a little unusual to have parents that do it, that do that. But apparently that happens a little bit more often than we, uh, we like to know or like to think. I'm always curious about it though, because people who get divorced after like 40 years, I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, you know, like, you know, I don't want to dive too much into my parents' marriage. It's kind of theirs. But one of the things I would say is on the outside of it is, is that, um, you know, we all like change and grow through our lives and yeah, they, uh, they didn't grow together. They kind of grew apart. Um, and they, uh, didn't do enough to make sure that they're growing together in the right direction. And, mm. uh, that's something I'm kind of like taking on for my own marriage is just to make mm. sure that I'm trying to grow the same way my wife is. Cause I love her. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, great point. Good advice. Did you have siblings? Were you the only kid, or no? I'm the eldest of three. Um, my two sisters are close in age. Uh, Katie's a year and a half younger than I am, and married. Uh, she goes by Emmy now. I uh, was a year and a half younger than Katie. Um, so super, super successful. Uh, Katie's a veterinarian, kind of like a real high end veterinarian. She does. Uh, she's an internal medicine vet veterinarian, criticalist. She's kind of okay. like like. In human doctor worlds, like she's like four different specialties at once. Um, wow. So, um, and then uh, then Emmy, she works in uh, in politics. She's run a couple of uh, like big political campaigns um, at the Senate level and then at the governor level. Um, wow! So All right. Now she does some consulting within politics. Yeah, great. Yeah, she probably makes a lot of money doing that. Just do the consulting. Uh, yeah, she. You know, it's uh, it's funny because like the you know all the the political types like you know. Uh, you have to kind of be in like the campaign to 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 be seen as you know part of the team sometimes and you know but it's like it's just an incredible grind and there's not as much money and then like the moment you step out you're like it's still a lot of work don't get me wrong but like mm -hmm. um, uh, the brother in me is happy that she's you know s slowed down just a touch there because more money less stress yeah right oh yeah I'm sure yeah super stressful so you got into the naval academy which is not easy to do. So were you like a straight A student, good kid, athlete, the perfect kid? With how, what, what? Tell me, tell me about your. I was very, I was, uh, kind of recurring theme in my life. I think I had like a lot of horsepower, not a lot of motivation, uh, and so I, uh, um, like I just didn't like doing homework. That was I just I didn't feel any reason to do it, and and nobody, my parents, I think, like you know, had to beat me with a two by four to do it. <laughs> uh, not literally, but you know, like they were just always on me. And so, you know, I did A's and B's. I did all right. Um, okay. But, uh, I took, um, I was never like one of the good students, but I was always in like all the, the AP courses. Um, okay. and I, I took like more, I think AP courses than anybody else in my high school or, or close to. All right. Like, even to the point of having to like take night school, like PE in order to make more room for the AP courses. Um, wow. And, uh, and then I just had like this real passion for, um, I just, I'm just kind of a passionate guy a lot of times. And so, um, 
I think the thing that got me into the Naval Academy was is that I um, I started running like a series of concerts for charity. Um, just I liked ska music when I was a kid, and I would put together these concerts, and like it was just like I saw a problem, I wanted to go work on it. Okay, and I kind of brought the resources to do it, and like I think the Naval Academy looked at my guess. I've you know I've never actually talked to anybody on the admissions board, uh, but my guess is they kind of looked at that and go like, ah, this kid's got like he's actually got some talent here you know, and some motivation, you know, but high school is just not totally his jam. Um, so that, that would be my read of, of how I got in there. Uh, the other and, thing I would say is it's not that hard to get in if you're from Idaho, uh, or at least it wasn't at the time because there's not a lot of people, uh, uh, there's not as many people, you know, attempting to go to the Naval Academy as say from like Maryland. I see. So strategically, they're trying to pluck kids from across the country on purpose. Then there's a there's a strategy around that. I see. I didn't know that. It's not only a strategy; it's the law, actually. Um, oh. Every every congressperson uh, and every senator uh, gets five people at the academy, and they get a certain I, number of nominations. I so see. So if you live in a low density state, you know where you have okay. like a disproportionate amount of representation at in Congress, then you know uh, it's a little easier. I see. I didn't know that. Thanks for the education around that. Why the Naval Academy? I mean, you grew up in the West, right? Forest, like mountains. Like why? Why water? <laughs> why? Why the Navy? <laughs> um, you know, I um, I just like the vibe better of the Navy. Okay. Um, you know, and like you know, you're 18. You're like I was a dumb kid. Like yeah. so. Um. You know, you just look at it and you go like, oh, yeah, the Navy seems fun. Like, I mean, like, it's just as dumb as that, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't, you know, I never was interested in doing, like, Army stuff. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, right. And the Air Force seemed okay, but, like, I um, mean, it's funny because I ended up becoming a pilot, right? But um, but just, like, the the vibe of the Air Force, for some reason, didn't sit with me. It's, it's just as dumb as that. Interesting. Uh, you know, interesting. Well, you know. I've been to Annapolis a few times and uh, I've been downtown when the cadets, I, I guess is what you call them. Right. I, I've been downtown when they're out and about a little bit, you know, like at, like at dinner time or happy hour time, I've been down there for some conferences and stuff and, you know, and they're walking around downtown. And the one thing that, that I still see clearly is just, the respect and the way they carry themselves even when they're out on the town like man i mean you know yes sir no sir open the door for people i mean just very well put together you know every every kid that i saw and i and i remember a couple of times thinking man okay yeah these these guys they must have been told that they will be killed if they act up downtown. I don't know. <laughs> there's a little bit of that, but you know, there's like, there's also like this component of like organizational culture. Like that's really important that like, um, it's not that you're like fearing retribution from your superiors. It's the fact that like we all hold each other to higher standards. Um, and so like when people start like sliding, like, like the first people to kind of question them are, are their peers generally. Uh, okay. And that's, you know, like it's it's now what is beat into your head um, is is that you know, and it's all the the Naval Academy's gotten only more selective since I went there. But um, is is that there were, you know, I think they had like a nine percent acceptance rate last year. Um, that means that you know, for every one of you that got in there, there was nine other people that wanted. Um, and so, 
you know, free education, incredible opportunities, you know, and so if, if you're not taking this thing seriously, like you don't belong here, go, you should have left me make space for somebody else. Get out of here. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. Yep. Very good. Did you know you were going to make a career out of being in the Navy? Did you, did you think ahead of time, I'm going to do my 20 years or was that a plan or no? Okay. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I went to the Navy thinking like, it'd be fun to like drive ships. I thought I was too tall to be a pilot. I'm like six foot five. Um, oh, you are. Oh, you're big dude. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My call sign when I was flying was tab T A B B, which is short for that's a big boy. Um, there's a, there's a less PC version. Um, but, um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm about as big as you get with my flying in the, like my former career. And, okay. um, yeah, I went there thinking I'd be a ship driver. I'd see what it's like, get a good education, you know, didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, I was kind of aimless in high school, you know, as evidenced by my grades. Okay. <clears throat> and then, um, yeah, then I did like a summer cruise where I was flying with a helicopter squadron and said, I want to go fly helicopters. Um, and then it turns out I was too tall for helicopters um, where they put a new seat cushion in the training helicopter and that qualified me out of all of them because I'm like, I'm short in the legs and long in the torso. Okay. And so then it was like jets or bust for me at that point. So I went I went out and got jet grades to to go do that. How about that? All right. Ended up staying 20 years. Thanks for your service, by the way. Did you ever did you ever see any uh, scary stuff? Anything you want to share? Like what's the were you ever in like some some super bad danger situations? Uh I had, you know, I had kind of a weird career. Um, so like I, I was first class post 9-11 to graduate. So like a lot of my all of my friends went off to war. Uh, flight training for me took about four years. So I was kind of bouncing around down the Southeast, um, Florida, Mississippi, Texas, Virginia, finally get, uh, out to the fleet, you know, you know, qualified in the, in the, in the super Hornet. And then I was deployed to the Western Pacific with a squadron out of Japan, which I adored. And I had such a great time there, but it was also like, we were like the Admiral's personal aircraft carrier. So we never left the Western Pacific while all these guys were chopping in and out of, um, out of fifth fleet. Uh, so, um, so like all my stuff was peacetime. Uh, it was like fighting the cold war, you know, just, you know, reminding the Chinese that like there is a U.S. Navy presence here. <laughs> um, that was pretty much what we did. Um, uh, okay. so I did have like, I had like, you know, a couple of scary moments, like landing the ship, you know, on the, you know, on the ship at night, you know, bad weather, deck pitching, hooks, not catching the wire going around a couple of times like that. You know, that got my attention, but, um, <laughs> you know, but as far as like wartime stuff, no, that, that, that was not my part of my career at all. Okay. Uh, do you see any, um, we don't have to go down this path too far, but I'm just curious your, your, your thoughts. Do you see any potential danger dangers with the Chinese or the Russians, uh, uh as we move along here, uh, you, you know, we don't have to do a whole hour podcast on it, but based on your experience, are you. Are you uh, watching in the background? Are you you and your buddies talking? Are you like a little nervous? Or you're like, ah, eh, it's all going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. So I um, I had I did my 20 years, but I the last eight years were in the reserves, so I wasn't like yeah. super involved, and I wasn't flying in that case. So I'm a little out of the loop. Okay. Um, on the on the bigger picture stuff there, like I think um, within the military, um, you know, you shouldn't ever. Uh, underestimate your you know potential adversaries um but in the case of like the russians um there was always like this kind of sense of like maybe they don't totally have their act together and that's kind of being like shown in ukraine okay. um and in the case of the chinese um they very much have their act together and they're doing a 
lot of smart things and advancing and they've been really um you know, um, as a democracy, we need to kind of get our act together a little bit here because um, one of the advantages of a totalitarian state is, is that you can have coherent strategy that lasts for decades. Um, and, uh, you know, that takes willpower to execute on the dem- on a, in a democratic nation. Mm-hmm. And so the Chinese have been executing that strategy slowly and surely um, for decades. Um, so think- I think there's that. But like when I think of like strategy concerns, I actually... Um, I'm less concerned about like the like a like a nation state and actually more about like non-human threats uh, threat multipliers like climate or more more disease i think those are much more destabilizing to the security picture yeah that carries us right into what you're doing for a living um the one thing that makes me nervous i'm not an expert on this i i'm just talking ignorantly just like a commoner would but uh uh i just uh i, I guess what makes me a little bit nervous is you know I feel like nuclear weapons don't really even don't really matter anymore. Right. Like, cause I just feel like no, nobody's going to use them. So it's almost like, okay, well, those are just, let's just set those aside. If nobody's going to use them, then, you know, if China decided to get, get uh, scrappy, it, it could, it could get messy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the things to think about with China. Um, so nuclear weapons are worth considering, but like putting those aside for a second, which is that like, um, if China decided to start becoming particularly belligerent, like um, all the nations that we're interested in, they would have to um, essentially attack by going through the ocean. Um, and that an, an amphibious operation is a much, much harder thing to pull off. Yeah. There's a lot of advantages to the home team on that one. Um, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Embargo, so, embargoes on product that they ship over here is scares me more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we we have such an integrated economy. Like I I um is it a a, a zero likelihood s- scenario? No, but like I think it's a low likelihood scenario that like okay. as long as we keep our economies fairly intertwined that there's not much reason to to, yeah. to act a fool on that. Gotcha. Tell me are you married? You said you married kids, I think, right? Tell me what tell me. What do you want to share? When when did you how did you meet your wife? Um how many kids you got? Give us a little uh, update there. Yeah, sure. My uh, my wife Lindsay and I've been married for about uh, twelve and a half years. We'll be thirteen in October. Um, okay. We met um, in two thousand eight at a wedding from between two friends of ours. Oh. Um, and uh, it was uh, you know kind of a funny story. We weren't um, we were set up a little bit, but she was kind of resistant to the whole thing because I was living in Japan at the time. Oh right, and, well, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's like, and well, matter of fact, like I was only. I actually got off of deployment to go to this wedding. Like, like it was this really weird thing. So like, um, I met her, we danced, she wasn't interested. I went and danced with other people or our friends kept pushing us back together. Finally, at the end of the night, like I was just like, cause like 24 hours after I, I did this, I was back on ship, like out in the Pacific, like gone. Yeah. And so I said like, uh, Hey, can I get, just get your email address? Um, it's clear they wanted us to talk to each other. And, <laughs> and, um, so she gave it to me, I think probably against her better judgment. And um, I think I was just a lot more charming by email than I was in person. Um, so we did this like crazy long distance thing where I was at sh- at sea and then living in Japan and she was going through training in, in Tennessee. And so I would call her when I was going to bed, but she was driving to work in the morning. 
Um, and so we had like this, you couldn't have been more long distance and, you know, without like going to the moon. Yeah. Right. And, uh, um, and then I came back stateside and I was an instructor in Virginia. And so I used to volunteer to take the jet on the road because I wasn't single, but I wasn't married either. Okay. And, uh, and so whenever somebody needed a jet moved across the country, I would do it because I could stop into Nashville because they had government contract gas there. And, uh, and I'd go hang out with her for a night and then, mm. you know, we'd go out on a date and, and, you know, get breakfast and then I'd go get in the jet and fly away. Wow. Uh, so we wow. did that for a while. And then, um, uh, and then I proposed to her and she moved to Virginia and then we, uh, you know, I finished up my time in Virginia. I went to, we did about two and a half years when I was, uh, uh out of the cockpit doing some, uh, staff work in Naples, Italy. Okay. Oh, wow. That's where my, that's where my son Luke was born. Oh, cool. Um, All right. And then, uh. And then I wanted to get out of, off of active duty, move to, we decided to move to Denver shortly thereafter. Ellen was born and, and that's, that's the family, man. We got, uh, Luke's a very, uh, uh, creative and funny nine-year-old. Ellen's an incredibly precocious, like seven-year-old that I mostly just have to stay out of the way of. <laughs> and, uh, I trained him to like all the things that I like. So we get to do them all together as a family, which is cool. That's pretty cool. Now your son, he's going to have, he's going to have something going for him because when he gets into high school, he'll be the only kid probably that, that will be able to say I was born in Italy and I have dual citizenship. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the poor dude, like he was born in the, the town that he was born in is Grishignano da Versa. So he's going to have to put that on every like form for the rest of his life as far as, you know, it's like 50 letters long. <laughs> and, <you know. laughs> so. Wow. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, pretty, what's your wife do? Um, she's a physician. She works as a hospitalist at uh, at a local hospital here. Uh, okay. All right. Very good. All right. Cool. I'll th thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. You, did you want to come back to Denver? Did you pick Denver specifically for the startup stuff that we'll get into? Or did is that just because you grew up in Casper and you were familiar with Colorado and you love mountain states? Or what was the what was the reason there? Yeah, my sister Emmy moved here first with her, her campaigns. And she just said she, this is where she's playing her flag. And so she, um, I think. she really sold us on it. Um, Denver was as far east as I was willing to live. I wanted to live in a mountain state. Um, um, and then, you know, when we started looking at, um, you know, the balance of like what I wanted to do, uh, what my wife's career was, where we could kind of have access to the outdoors, mm -hmm. et cetera, Denver just kind of rose to the top of the list. Plus we had family, you know, yeah. so, um, yeah. and since then we've had more family move. Um, my, uh, my mother moved here and then so did my in-laws. I'm with you, bro. I, I'm a mountain state guy. Now we've been here 17 years. I, I grew up in Oklahoma and, uh, you know, I'll go back home and see family and stuff. And I always tell them, I'm like, look, I am, you know, sorry, I'm never coming back. I am a mountain state guy now. I, you know, I'm it, that's it. I, some Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado. I, I gotta be in a mountain state. I can't, I can't, I, I love the, just going up to the mountains and doing the activities and all the outdoor stuff. So yeah, I'm totally with yeah. you. I like to think of myself as a public lands owner, you know what I mean? And I, I want to be as close to the public lands as I can. Cause like, yes, it's just, it's such a quality of life and answer. Like just to, you know, on a weekend to go disappear up into the woods and, and, you know, be alone with your family and like, you know, some incredible scenery. I do it all the time. I don't know if you checked my LinkedIn or anything like that, but uh, yeah, bro, I have a Jeep that's all done up and, I go, I probably did 15 solo trips last summer by myself. And then my wife and I go together with a little trailer we have. She won't go, she won't go in the Jeep, do the tent sleeping. But uh, yeah, I go all the time. It, it is a, uh, for me, psychologically, 
physically, mentally, it just, it, it, you know, I'll go up for two or three nights and just get away, turn the phone off. And I, I, I if you understand, but a lot of people don't, right? Just, it just does something to me. I come back, I just feel so refreshed and recharged and ready and come back with some new ideas. I mean, I, I love it. Yeah. I go, I go all the time. My, the problem now, Mike, is that going where I don't see other people is getting harder. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's why I do the backpacking. Uh, Cause you know, if you have to sweat to get in there, usually people are a little bit yeah. less uh, inclined to do such a thing. And I don't go to like the high, the high traffic areas generally, you know, um, yeah. my kids are pretty good backpackers, you know, even at, at seven and nine, they can do about like six, seven, eight miles. Okay. Um, but, okay. uh, usually the, the limiting factor is, is the load that I'm carrying. Cause they're, they they do not have like that much of a load. And, uh, you know, so we'll get in like three, four miles, which is not that much, but it's enough that like the crowds disappear. Just yep. Just enough. That's great. That's perfect. Can I ask you, uh, we could, by the way, me and you could talk about camping for the next two hours. Yeah. Right. Um, um what is your favorite pad, uh, sleeping pad? What What are you currently using? What brand? Because, man, I've been through so many try, trying to figure out one that doesn't. I don't. My shoulders aren't hurting and everything else. You know, like what What are you currently using? I use a Big Agnes. What is it? I think it's called Big Agnes. Big uh, Agnes. Okay. All right. All right. That's the brand name. Okay. Uh, um, let me just look it up real quick. Kind of like half self self inflating and blow it up the rest, or what? Or is it got like a? Uh, do Do you have to like do you have to like use the little bag to put a little more air in it, or it just folds out? Uh, I mean, I open it up. It's a it's an air mattress. You blow it up with your lungs. Okay. Um, but it it's not too bad. It's it's thick and it's warm, man. Like um, is I it? actually have um uh, an arthritic shoulder, so I'm particularly sensitive to like the shoulder issues, man. Me too. And, uh, yes. You know you don't feel quite as much like you've been sleeping on the ground uh, when you, with this pad as some of the others, but it's, it's thick. I mean, it's, I don't know, okay. like three, four inches thick. Okay. All right, cool. I'll try it. Cause yeah, I got that shoulder arthritis. Yeah. I mean, I love going. I just, but the next morning I'm like, damn, I'm sore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It takes, it takes a little bit more to get things moving. Uh, you know, when you get gray in the beard. Yes. And, but, and by the way, we, uh, it's not like I don't like people. I mean, I don't mind visiting with people in the mountains, but a lot of times my, I, I'm going up there specifically to get away from people sometimes, you know, and then I'll, I'll, I'll work my way like, you know, three hours back into like a pretty remote spot where I've purposely tried to kind of get away from people. And then, you know, somebody will come in there and camp, you know, 300 yards from me. And I'm like, no, man, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I've definitely thought about packing up a couple of times when there was somebody just like a little bit too close and just being like, you know, I may yeah. not have that quite at the view if I go somewhere else, but I won't have to listen to this guy snore. Uh, and that's, that's what I want. So, yep. so totally agree. So, okay. So you get out of the Navy, um, you retire, you retire. What talk, talk to me about what you decided to do and how, and then kind of walk us into how the entrepreneurial spirit, like we're, How'd that even happen? Give me the transition. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a couple things in my background, I think a couple of my, I have a couple family members that have, have gone down the entrepreneurial track and oh, I see okay. uh, to varying degrees of success. Uh, okay. Like I have okay. a cousin that ended up taking like a company public. 
Um, I have another cousin, an, an uncle that worked in med tech for a while. Wow. And I saw that, like, I saw a very clear relief, like the struggle with both of them. So like, I kind of knew what I was getting into. Okay. Um, the other part was I had like an incredible safety net, right. Which is that like, um, I had like this reserve job that I could go do and bring in a little extra income and help me with like the mental part of transitioning out of active duty into the reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a wife that is a physician. And yeah, that helps. That helps. The numbers, <laughs> you know, she's working part time, but we have a pretty great quality of life. And like, um, it just gave me a lot of runway to go, like, try to chase after, like, you know, something cool. big. Yeah. The other part of it was, is that, um, when I was a kid, uh, my grandfather, that forester I was telling you about, isn't, um, there was a big fire in 1989 when I was nine years old called the Loman fire. Um, yeah. and it, um, it seemed like super memorable and it was huge for, for the time, but anymore, it's like a really small wildfire, All right. uh, 44,000 acres. And it put up a mushroom cloud and that was kind of at the end of the cold war. And like, you just look at that and you go like, that ain't right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, my grandfather said, don't worry about it. You know, the forest service will replant it or it'll grow back. And, you know, this is, you know, he was a little advanced for his time and like he actually understood how well uh how important fire was to like kind of forest ecology mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but he has also like i don't think he had had seen where like things were actually going which is that like the, these fires were a sign that like the forest was uh out of balance in a couple of ways uh one mm-hmm. is that it had been uh they'd suppressed wildfires for so long that there was this big fuel load and the other part was is that um the climate was changing it was just getting hotter mm-hmm. um and so, um, so anyways, I, you know, what do I know? I'm nine years old. I say, okay, grandpa, you know, <laughs> you know, let's keep walking. And, uh, so I get married in 2010 and 2011, uh, trying to set that hook for my wife, tell her about, cause she grew up back East. Um, and about like how, like, Hey, we, you know, I don't know when this Navy thing's ending, but like, I know like when it does, like, I want to go live in the West. Yeah. And uh, so I took her back to Idaho. It was the end of May beginning of June. Um, and as any Westerner knows, like, that's just like, it's, it's just like fishing with dynamite, right? We, like everything's gorgeous. It's, you know, snow on the mountains, rivers, super full. Everything's like really green. The weather's like, you know, perfect timing. Good day, job. Cool good job, night. Mike. You, yeah, yeah. Good strategy move. You took her right at the right time. Yeah. So anyway, so we go around Idaho, the whole, you know, the state looks lovely and yeah, uh, she's go like, by yeah, the Loman cool. fire and it was bare and it was 23 years after the fact. Still, still. Yeah. 22 years after the fact and uh it's still there to this day actually um why well i guess that's a whole nother i know it's probably an hour answer but why uh short version is fires burn uh more intensely than they did historically um and so we've killed the ability for natural regeneration um if you think about it like it used to be like some trees were like propagate like through fire like a sequoia lodgepole pines they can't even like their seeds their their cones won't even open up without a fire Right. Are you like, telling Are you telling me that the recent fires up up by uh, Chambers Lake and Red Feather and all that? Are you telling me that that's not that, that's that's not coming back then? That's right. Like the like uh, so for Colorado here, if you go out to the Hayman, which burned in two thousand two, um, so to give you a sense of scale there, um, um, the Buffalo Creek fire in nineteen ninety six was fourteen thousand acres at the time. That was the largest fire in Colorado state history. Okay. 10 years or six years later, uh, the Hayman Creek fire, 140,000 acres burned. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, we had several fires of 300,000 acres plus, right? Yes. yes. Um, 
And so uh, there's been a few studies been done on the Hayman, uh, which talk about that, like natural regeneration, assuming a stable climate won't occur for uh, in some areas for as much as a thousand years. What? Okay. Yeah. Now you got me. Now you got now. Okay. Holy shit. I did not know that. All right. Sorry. I didn't mean to go down this path. I got you off track there a little no, bit. No, you're good, man. I mean, but, like uh, that was, yeah, that was yeah. what got me into it. Right. Wow, Which is like, okay. it's, it's very much it's an out of sight, out of mind problem. And like any Colorado that I talk to about the Heyman, they go, if they were here when it happened, like I, they go, yeah, I remember that man it seemed to like it was big. We used to go hang out down there all the time, but since the fire, not so much. And like, this is a fire that's like Denver's backyard. It's an hour away. Yeah. Right. Huge, you know, outdoor loving Colorado group, you know, would, would go and camp there. And now they don't, yeah. they just change their behaviors and they don't go there anymore. And they forget that it's gone. Wow. So, you know, I'm just going to pause there for a second. So, uh, what is it? Cameron pass is that what it is. Yeah. What's the, what's the pass up there by chambers? Like yeah. Camera pass. So now see, it's interesting when you're describing this to me, when, well, all right, so this is how ignorant I am on the topic. I'm thinking, okay, there was a shit ton of beetle kill up there. Freaking 70% of the trees were dead anyway. Maybe this is good. It clears it out and it'll all grow back. That's what I'm thinking. But what you're telling me is, no, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, these fires, especially in those beetle kill, because it's so dry tinder until like it takes a couple of decades for that beetle kill to like to decay enough that like it's it's not as, as huge a fire risk. Mm. anyways they burn just hot as blazes and it sterilized it burns up all the seed and all the seed sources and so the problem is is not that like trees won't grow there it's that that there's no seed for it ah, um, i see that all right now we're getting right into what, what okay now i see where yeah. this is going <laughs> so that's part of it but the other i mean there is also like because it, in, historically fires used to burn in such a way that like you'd have like in some areas where you'd have a patch where it'd get like really hot and it'd burn out a stand and then you'd have like kind of a meadow complex but then others areas it'd be like lower intensity and kill off like the dead it burn out the dead wood and the, the low small trees and things like that yeah and so you get this patchwork across a forest where yeah. you had like different but now when you have like 100 300 acres of of like you just, just there's just no way that the seeds can get in and you have changed like the microclimate there as well which yeah. is it's just baked hot there's no you know shade for that little meadow set system that would normally have and so like even grasses have a hard time sometimes that's the way it looks um southwest of medicine bow kind of on the wyoming side up in there where that um, that's the way it looks i mean it's just i mean <laughs> it's just nothing yeah. i mean we're to be blunt we're losing our forests like that's what's happening in the west wow uh, uh now the, the feds are coming in with some money the uh under like a it was uh in this last uh congressional cycle mm -hmm. um and so there's some money that's coming out for reforestation um in my estimation it's not enough and it's too late and and but like you know there's some you know the the, the machinery is starting to, to recognize that like this this is a priority that we need to have if as a public yes. land owner this is something we all should care about because if it's not burned like we've been talking about it, it's beetle kill <laughs> it feels like it's one of the two it's like there are to your point you said losing the forest it's true like they're really there's not a ton of just lush green beautiful forest not really not 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 in the scope of things because i've lived i mean i go to the mountains all the time it's either it's either burned or there's beetle kill i mean there's a few healthy places but not a shit ton in my opinion it might do you agree with that is that accurate yeah it's accurate i mean like and again that's it's like this del delicate balance with fire um it used to be native americans in particular but uh they were a lot of like natural ignition sources and you'd have like large but low intensity burns that would like burn out the underbrush 
Yeah. And it kept the forest from getting too dense. Um, we suppressed that for a hundred years uh, for timber interests and because people just didn't like fire. Um, and then that got the forest completely overgrown. Uh, but now we're at this point where it's so overgrown that if you let a fire get started, like it's just going to go like blazes. Um, and the, the, they've tried doing like a little bit of like some thinning uh, or doing some sort of controlled burns, but like the windows for being able to do that with so many people that live near or in the forest um, and with like the, the warmer weather that we're having now associated with the climate means that there's just fewer windows that you can do that. So uh, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to forest management right now. Damn, you're, you're depressing me, Mike. How do we fix it? Do you, <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm already depressed sometimes when I go up there and, uh, okay. So is this why you start renew West? Is this what happened? Yeah, that's right. So I had this experience with the wildfire and I was just like, man, I got to do something about this. Okay. Um, I loved the people that I knew in the Navy, but I didn't totally love the Navy. Like I liked it. I enjoyed it. But like, there was like this component of like, uh, you have to love it if you're going to be gone away from your family that much. Mm. Um, otherwise it's like the pain would, was just a little too high for me. Okay. So I, I knew I wanted to get out, uh, leave active duty. I wanted to go like, uh, try to, you know, tilt after, you know, something big. And so that's why I started Renew West. And, um, are you still running Renew West? Is that still in operation? Renew West is still in operation. I'm no longer uh, running it. Uh, I do have a, an ownership stake in it there. Uh, my uh, uh, co-founder and partner there is, is now taking over as CEO as I stepped out to run Acclimate. Okay. Do you want to just get, before you get into Acclimate, you want to just tell the listeners really quick about Renew West, like just give them the, the quick elevator pitch on, on what it is? Yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, so Renew West started about uh, specifically as around leveraging uh, carbon markets to uh, reforest areas of the West that have been burned by wildfire. Um, and it's since grown into uh, leveraging natural and working lands to fight climate change. Um, and okay. so that may be, that's reforestation. Uh, Renew West uh, lays claim to planting the, the largest single site reforestation project uh, in U.S. history. Two million trees in Northern California. Cool. Uh, so super proud of that. Um, and they're doing a lot of great things in, um, frankly, all over the world. Uh, South America, Central America, uh, South Pacific. Um, so it's really kind of uh, developed into this this larger carbon offset project development company, and I'm I'm is really proud of where they're going. Nonprofit or no? It's a for profit company. Um, the my my thought on this was is there was a lot of nonprofits doing great work, but if we wanted to, they weren't, and they never could get to the scale that the problem required. Uh -huh. And so I wanted to see if there was a, a way to leverage uh, carbon markets in order to to match uh, both the scale of the problem and the opportunity to to make money, which would drive further capital into it. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, and I know we wanted to get in, get into acclimate, but yeah, but how do you make money? What what what's the business model? Yeah, carbon offset production. <clears throat> so you plant trees, uh, they grow for a little bit. You measure them, right? In the, in the case of the project that we did in California, you measure them. Uh, um, that gets sold to a company that pollutes associated uh, that produce puts carbon emissions into the atmosphere, um, and the trees by growing clean it up. Interesting. Wow. Okay. All right. Why'd you get out? Did you, did you get out? Cause you wanted to start acclimate or you, you and your partner had a separation? What, why the change? Um, so I'd had this idea for, uh, for, uh, something like acclimate for a little while, just didn't have the bandwidth or the capacity. Um, okay. All right. and, uh, a guy that I'd known, uh, for years, um, who's my co-founder here at acclimate William, um, he and I were in a mastermind together. He was doing a separate company, it collapsed under the way of the pandemic. Um, and so he was kind of looking for his next thing. Um, and I thought, 
uh, and we had like a little bit of free time at the beginning of the pandemic, which is uh, not a good thing for an entrepreneur because you you tend to fill yourself your time, right? And so he came over and and so we whiteboarded out and said like, hey, this is what I think. Um, Acclimate's on the carbon offset sales uh, side of things. And so we thought that there was like an integration about like being able to like having relationships directly with customers. And then we saw that the company had its own legs um, and it had like a very different investor group that might have to go through it, different customer set, et cetera. And so mm-hmm. it was either this option of like, um, like end acclimate internal to, and just focus on the, the Renew West stuff or separate the two. Um, I see. And so, I see. Um, so that's what we did. We separated the two and uh, I went out after acclimate uh, Renew West. Since I left, uh, they raised a pretty good sized round of money. They're hiring up. Uh, they're doing great. like a lot of great stuff. So uh, it's off and running. I'm, I'm just really proud of where it's going. Very good. Make sure you tell your friends at, at Renew West that Ryder Flex's day job is a recruiting firm. So since they're hiring up, make sure he calls me. No, I'm just you got it. <laughs> All right. So acclimate, give us the, give us the three minute elevator pitch. And by the way, for the listeners, it's A-C-L-Y-M-A-T-E acclimate.com. Give us, give us the pitch, do it. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Um, so Acclimate is a climate management software for small to medium-sized businesses. Um, and so what that means is that like, if you want to deal with your carbon footprint as a small business, uh, historically you've had to hire a consultant um, or you've had to like learn it up yourself, which is like pretty intense. Um, and so uh, we thought that there was a lower cost, more effective way of uh, building this out in software where you could uh, connect up certain data sources of yours. We'd be able to provide you with what your emissions footprint is, guidance on how to reduce it. And then uh, if you're interested in buying offsets, then we have an offset marketplace uh, that you can buy that and a certification that can tell everybody that you're doing the work that uh, your employees, customers, uh, potentially your investors or your, um, uh, you know, your large scale customers, like what they expect you to be doing. Mm. Good for uh, marketing for the brand, I would think. Does it help uh, the businesses save money, too, or it's not really about the money? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, so uh, it's absolutely great for brand um, on the millennials, like millennials now who are like into their forties, 75% of them work for a, pay, uh, will work uh, for a pay cut uh, for a company that uh, is yeah. uh, good on environmental practices. Two thirds of them won't work for a company at all. That's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's, uh, it's good for that. It's good for customers to understand, especially in specific industries um, around sustainability. Um, but it does save you money generally too. Like I've always re- rejected this notion that um, that it's either like do the right thing for the climate or for the environment or or make money, right? Like actually, the if you when you really think about like what's going on here is is generally um, the fa- the lowest hanging fruit for reducing your emissions is just to get more efficient, and this helps to identify like where those inefficiencies are. Okay, uh, and so okay. efficiency saves you money. Um, and then for some of our customers, like this is like, this is table stakes. This is what they have to do to participate in their industry. Um, for example, like Microsoft now requires all of its suppliers, irrespective of size, to reduce their emissions by 55% by 2030. Um, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, GM right. doesn't have quite as stringent a thing, but they do require you to track and reduce your emissions Wow. as well, wow. all suppliers. Um, and your and, so, and your company and your software is going to help them track and do that, right? It's now now it's like, oh well, let's just plug in acclimate and that's going to help. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to become an expert in this stuff. Uh-huh. We just help you get it done and and get about mm-hmm. like doing what's like important, which is is like running your business, right? I see. Okay. Uh, oh, I love it. Now you're not a, you're not a software engineer, so how did you 
Did you have to raise some cash to pay a bunch of people to code all this this SaaS? I mean, it's kind of like a, I guess it's a SaaS company too. Yeah, we're a SaaS uh, marketplace hybrid. So, yeah, um, yeah. so uh, uh, William is a coder. Um, so ah, he, uh, he did all of okay. our initial coding. And then we have uh, had interns and other folks. We have two full time uh, developers right now beyond okay. William. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, all right. All right. You and William uh, bootstrapped it together or have you raised some cash? So first a little bit of cash came out of Renew West as we were kind of developing it. That was a, a pretty meager amount of money. You know, William was okay. living uh, in his parents' basement. He likes to talk about his like his Harry Potter bed because there's a little twin bed under the stairs. Um, you know, and I wasn't taking a salary and a whole bunch of stuff, right? And um, so we did that and then we ended up getting to Techstars. Um, oh, so okay. That, okay. that came with uh, a little bit of cash there um, and uh William and I are very, very good at running lean companies. So we ran that um, like total development capital uh, up until about August of last year was about 160 K um, okay. and that include staff and a bunch of other stuff. Okay. And then, uh, and then we raised a, a small kind of pre-seed uh, round that, uh, that closed in August of last year. And, and we, we've gotten like a grant and now we've got a, a potential pilot coming. Cool. So, like, yeah, at this point, you know, um, we'll probably go out and raise another round, but like it's, uh, we're not feeling the pressure yet. Are you paying yourself yet or no? Yeah, small salary. Small, uh, yeah. So, you know, but we're still really, really lean. Like when I talk about it like that, I, you know, because we got six full time and four in interns and okay, our burn rate is like 32K a month. All right. Well, it's not, hey, that's not too bad. Uh, it's not too bad, but you are post revenue. I mean, you're, you're, you have clients, you have business, you're, you're bringing cash in. You're not just straight up burning cash. Yeah, that's right. So we do have customers, um, you know, everything from like the solopreneur up to, we have a bank in the Southeast with like 26 locations and 650 cool. employees. Great. So, okay. um, you know, Great. part of being like that, that simple low cost solution means is that you have to like, we have to continue to build the scale of it. Yep. And so yep. we're not cash flow positive yet, but, um, but we're seeing the path. That's good, man. Um, are you, uh, is it, is it by month by how do they pay you? How, how, how do you charge the client? Uh, is it the, by the size of the business or tell me how that model works? Yeah. So we have uh, three different pricing tiers for the okay. software and then we also sell offsets as well. Okay. Um, and so the, we have a free tier, which is just kind of like basic accounting. Um, and we're coming out with like an individual calculator as well that you can do that. All right. Um, and then we have a paid uh, analytics tier, which allows you to kind of see your footprint and start to act on it. Um, and then uh, we have uh, a higher concierge, uh, soon to be uh, concierge slash integrations tier, where we just like do the data entry for you. Um, either mm. you provide it to us and we'll enter it or man, uh, manually or um, in the future where we'll just pull that data directly out of your systems. Um, and so we get paid on that and that's a monthly recurring uh, fee associated with that. Though most of our customers tend to pay us, you know, upfront. Okay. Can you do any implementation too on all the things that I'm supposed to do to correct, to be more, to be greener? Can you like, once you give me my report card, can you send people over to do it? do whatever tactical things need to be done. Well, so that's, that's the idea behind the marketplace. That's exactly it, which is like, there's stuff that like you can do. Um, and, uh, right now you need to be able to the data to kind of see where, like where you're inefficient, where you, you know, there's opportunities to do this. Yeah. Um, but right now, so we sell offsets, we have the leading selection of offsets as far as we can tell available anywhere on the web. 
Um, and we're partnered up with another company and we're only going to be expanding that like a really exclusive offset uh, offering, which is cool. That's nice. Um, But we want to like get further than that. We want to actually provide you with the tools for you to be able to do the thing that you need to do, you know, whether it's energy efficiency for your building, maybe you own your own facility and you want to put rooftop solar in. And if you don't, can we connect you up with, you know, a community solar or or some other form of carbon free electricity, you know, since we'll know um, where your employees, like what their commuting paths are, because we asked that during like a survey, we can help you to like potentially with mass transit offerings, or even potentially where you you place your office um, in order to make maximize efficiency. Um, And so it's just a lot of like cool things that start happening when you, when you develop that relationship with the, with the customer and and unlock it with the data. No doubt. The reason I ask about the implementation and the tactical is because, you know, as a small business owner myself and most small to medium sized business owners, you know, people are always like, giving us the list of like, yeah, you need to do all these things. And, you know, my reaction is, okay, cool. I don't have time or people to do that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, time's our most valuable resource. And, you know, like you're wearing like 10 hats, right? Like, yeah, because you left five in the closet for for this month, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so, yeah, you don't have time for that. Yeah. You know, and even if you like care deeply about it, like, right. You you know, you know, what you care deeply most about is making the business work. Exactly. Uh, and that's and that's your job. You should. Yeah. yeah. You know, so like um, you know, that's why we think that we have like a pretty special offering here because like yeah, everybody like else is targeting like these big Fortune 500 types and like we care about the small business. Like we I think like that this it. is like super important and we, like it, there's a like, but there's a different problem set for small businesses. They don't need you know they don't need to be able to drill down into like category 5 of of their scope 3 emissions. What they really need right. to be able to do is is like okay, what do I do here? Like, and oh, oh, that's what I need to do. How? Oh, oh, click this. You know, like that's that's there the flow go. that we want to build for everybody. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Acclimate.com. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to ask you. Um, by the way, we got all the social media, but Facebook, LinkedIn, you got Twitter, you you you're, you there's some YouTube videos. Uh yeah, great. Uh you're everywhere. So um for the for the listeners, if they want to. And if they want to get in touch with you, they just go to the website and um, click on the get started probably, or the contact page. Is that best to reach out to you? Yeah, sure. They can reach out to me directly if they would like Mike at acclimate.com. Um, okay. You know, one right. of the things we like to do as a, when we tailor to small businesses is just to make sure that it's pretty relational, um, okay. you know, uh, especially right now. So they can reach out to me directly there um, or they can, you know, click on the get started. There's also an opportunity on the website to sign up for a demo uh, with okay. Travis who is um, our director of customer experience. Okay. And Travis is, is phenomenal. He loves solving problems and he's just like the nicest guy you ever met. So um, very, very you good. won't regret that time. I want to wrap this up by asking you two more questions about, about camping stuff. Sure. Okay. I know we're almost out of time. So me and you're both avid outdoor camper, hiker guys, right? Should we ban open fires like just all together um what is your what are your thoughts funny man when i was a kid i used to love fireworks like i, I love like fourth of july was is it still is my favorite holiday but like um it just makes me nervous man now that i see that that you know that but it's hard because like you know there was a lot of like like really solid and important memories to me like built next to a campfire exactly 
you know? And so like, it's so important. Um, I struggle. I struggle with it too. I can see, I can tell by your answer, you struggle with it emotionally too. I, yeah. I do too. Yeah. Um, you know, especially in Colorado, there's enough people in the woods that usually where there are camp where, uh, where there's like campsites, there's usually not a lot of downfalls. So like now you're having to pack your wood in. Yeah. So I don't know, man, like I, at this point, I think I'm kind of done with campfires. Um, you know, and like, there's like, if I'm like in like a, in like a public campground, you know, with a fire ring, you know, like I can buy firewood from the, the, you know, that guy, you know, I'll go do that. Yeah. But if it's anywhere, if it's anywhere else where I don't have like a good ability to put that fire out in a hurry, um, if, if something goes a little sideways, then I'm not doing it. Yeah. Uh, I will tell the listeners I bought two years ago. Now I bought, uh, you know, a little propane, uh, you know, uh, the, the rocks with the rocks or whatever. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, I put a little propane tank in the back of my Jeep and I got a long, I bought an extra extension hose. And so when I pull up, I just, I just started pulling that, that little, that propane stove out. And uh, at first I thought, man, I'm really going to miss the fire though. Right. I'm going to miss the crackling and the la la la. But, you know, over the last two years, I got to tell you, pulling up and just being able to pull that little, pull that propane stove out and just press the button and it's on. And then I can sit there and have beer and I don't have to worry about cutting up extra wood the whole for the next two hours. I kind of like it. (laughs) I'm all good with it. (laughs) There's definitely that, you know, there's like a, uh, you know, I guess what I would just say is is like, just follow the local, you know, regulations. And if there's a camping, if there's a fire ban, in fact, man, like adhere to that, like it's, you know, like it's religion. Absolutely, bro. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Mike, congratulations on uh, what you're doing. I I feel your passion around what you're doing. Um, Yeah, you need to make money, but you're also trying to, you know, not to sound cheesy, but make the world a better place, so to speak. Um, which is great if you can, if you can do things for the environment, if you can make the world a better place for your grandchildren and make a little money. So your wife doesn't get onto you for, you know, bringing home the bacon. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, you know, I love yeah. that gal, you know, she's never once asked about like what's in it for her. Like is she's just right? like, wow. yeah, That's she's cool. just awesome about it. And, great, um, man. yeah. I, That's cool. I like what you're doing. Congratulations. Mike Smith, thank you for sharing your story on the Rider Flex podcast. I appreciate it. It's good talking to you, Steve. Thanks for having me, man.